Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Matt Taibbi. Matt Taibbi is the author of Hate Inc. Why today's media makes us despise one another. Brilliant. A political journalist for Rolling Stone. Brilliant. Host of the podcast, Useful Idiots. He also has a good name. He also publishes a newsletter on Substack you can subscribe to. This is one of my favourite conversations I've had on this podcast for a long, long time time matt toby i took his phone number i think we're going to be seeing a lot more of him i'm going to be mining that dude for important information i thought he was beautiful i thought he had an elegance to him he had integrity i love him you're going to love this podcast we use matt toby's articles all the time on our youtube channel like where we report on corruption and media interpretation because matt toby is an honest voice he's not right he's not left he's actually resourcing principles that are a lot deeper than that authenticity integrity kindness things that we all need to find together so we can look beyond these artificial differences and find unity with one another unity and importantly love right jen yep that's right <laughs> jen, 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 jen. listen to shout outs Listen to shout out, shout outs, mischievous and magical. Always make time to listen to Russell. 90% of the time, it's something I'm really interested in. The other 10% I skip past. <laughs> well, I hope you don't skip past this, Mr. Tani, because this is you. I'm sure they're still informative and enjoyable. Only 10%, though. You'll be that 10%. No, I'm right? not the episodes. You are. <laughs> Quality <laughs> interviews, Stingray J. I started listening to this podcast because I wanted to learn more about politics and society and I've learned so much already. Brilliant interviews and obviously love old Russ. I'm on tour right now. Go and see me at, um, get, you know, see me in Newcastle and Hull and Bristol and Plymouth. Tickets are available. All the ones now are sold out, but you can come see me soon. Get on russellbrand.com and get your tickets. Also, sign up to my mailing list if you haven't already. Um, the only thing that remains for me to tell, well, Jen, do you want to say some things you've contributed oh, to this? I'm uh, I was, um, I liked my questions. Jen, your questions were great. Finally. I think those questions are going to... I'm happy I did that, and I think they could be good for clips. You know, shorter clips, because I think we should do shorter promotional clips. This episode with Matt Taibbi is one of my favourite episodes for a long time. Matt Taibbi is a brilliant journalist, a man of integrity and authenticity. We're going to be collaborating with him more in the future. Let's Should we go and listen to the conversation? Yes, please. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Matt, thanks for coming on Under the Skin. No, thank you. You're brilliant. It's, it's an honor. Well, thanks for saying that because I really love your writing. Not only the subjects you write about, but your um, like spirit and your prose. I really like your aggression. I like your sense of humor. <laughs> there was a sentence that we did in one of your videos last week. Um, someone remind me sooner or later because we use we use your article so much from your. Is it Substack that we're getting that off of? Yeah, Substack. <laughs> yeah, I'm using I'm using your stuff so often. Like and there was one bit I, I like there was I read it I think it was to do with possibly it was to do with insider trading it was a sort of a sentence that you'd written there was such a sort of I said that the poetics of it was sort of beautiful <laughs> even in terms of um, the well, onomatopoeia and stuff. Well, that's great. No, I mean I'm a I'm a failed fiction writer, you know. So uh, this this is what uh, the job I went into when I couldn't become the great novelist that I wanted to be when I was a kid. So uh, this is. Uh, this is what I'm doing instead, but it's 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 great anyway. When you wanted to be a great novelist, what 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 did you what do you mean by that? What kind of people inspired you, and what did you write? So um, I I had a, a little bit of a tough childhood. I 
you know, parents went through a tough divorce and I was very depressed as a kid. So what I did to cheer myself up was read funny novels. And um, uh, I was really uh, turned on by people like Nikolai Gogol, who's a Russian humorist. Uh, I read Evelyn Waugh. Um, the book Scoop was a big influence on me as a kid. Uh, Catch-22, books like that. So I wanted to be one of those sort of satirical uh novelists and it turns out that i just don't you know if you need a hundred things to be that person i'm i'm missing like seven of them uh so okay. uh, it just didn't work out yeah and so like i mean i don't just breeze past the your dreams being dashed but, <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, but like because i'm sort of excited at the sort of stuff that you do right like you know obviously um you were kind enough to compliment our videos. And I'm, I'm sort of curious because when we're like using your stuff, I'm aware that we're just really, I'm reacting to your opinion. I'm reacting to your research or at least research that you've compiled. And I suppose that is research. And um, I've like, do people go to you? Have you seen this? Look, it's your, it's your article is being used for this video. Oh, absolutely. I think the, the, the reach of your show, uh, especially, you know, in the last six months or so, it's uh, it's been incredible. So whenever you do one of those videos, I hear about it right away uh, from a variety of people, uh, which is which is one of the things I think is appealing about what you're doing. You're you're reaching uh, a number of different audiences, uh, which is unusual in this media landscape. So uh, huh. it's great, and I'm really glad you do it. And and uh, and I'm I'm always very honored when you when you take a look at one of my well thank you i mean like the reason we do it is because well like when we're making those videos that we're like approaching it with like how are we going to be talking about what's happening in the world now i use that phrase instead of the simple word news because as you have uh, brilliantly observed it's a sort of a branch of entertainment now rather than a sort of a reporting on you know current events and like, I feel like, what should we be telling people? And where I always wind up at is like, that, you know, where is corruption? How is information being managed? How are we being polarized? And one of the things that's um, was been surprising since we've uh, we've been doing our channel, Matt, and you know, and in particular, paying attention to and using your work as a resource, is like, let me just give you a couple of examples. We wrote this thing like after it was, you know, sort of proven that one of the key sources in the Russiagate thing was, you know, was paid by the Clinton campaign. We said, oh, wow, man, that's mental. Trump wasn't involved in some role, or at least one of the key pieces of evidence that suggested he was. Anyway, that led to a kind of Russell Brand's a Trump supporter. Then other things where we've been sort of like, hey, what's going on with these mandates? And like, you know, where I've like been so diligent about not expressing an opinion around what other people, whether they get vaccinated, don't get vaccinated, and I don't know, and I don't really care i'm more interested in the mat like the the way that it's reported on is so aggressive that and also it seems to me that what was once the liberal left is less favorable than ever that and that there's a sort of an attempt to smear and the, and that i'm sort of like at least in that daily beast article or whatever it was like it's like he's right wing he's anti-vax can you tell me of course i'm talking about a personal experience but i know this is a phenomenon you're familiar with this kind of polarization this thing what in your opinion is happening and, and why is it happening just this particular regard this polarization tribalism oppositionism yeah it's a great question i think you and i may have had similar experiences and as grow, growing up as sort of generally liberal um you know i i didn't particularly think a whole lot about politics but i had opinions that were 
generally in line with most of my friends who were almost entirely politically liberal. And one of the core values of, you know, was always free speech discussion. Let's let people talk. Let's let people say say what they have to say, and then we'll figure it out. You know, in in the you know the sort of great wash of ideas, something will emerge that will make sense. And in my my business journalism, and which is also my father's business, by the way, I grew up watching him work. He was a, a reporter, a very good one. Um, the, the ethos was always: we'll compile the information, we'll give it to the audience and let them sort it out. That's our job. Our job ends with getting the stuff and giving it to you. Uh, and sometime in the last five years or so, the entire ethos of the business really switched from let's give you the information to let's make sure that you get the right message from the information. And let's, let's make sure that you're frightened to look in certain directions. Um, that you know that you might suffer reputational harm if you embrace certain opinions, um, which is completely antithetical to the whole notion of liberalism, discussion, um, you know, free thought, free speech, free inquiry, uh, all these things that used to be sort of core values of, of you know, people on, you know, quote unquote, our, my side of the aisle, right? Uh, and I'm not sure exactly where that came from. I think in part, it was a reaction to Trump. Um, some of it had to do with commercial values in the business, but 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 mainly I, I, I just think that there has been a cultural sea change where those things just aren't as va valued as much as they used to be. When, uh, I, uh, when you anecdotally recount your experience of understanding liberalism, as the bloody word itself suggests, being about- I hate the word too, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But like that is implicit within it, obviously, or explicit actually, is freedom and the idea of freedom and like freedom of speech being sort of uppermost of those values the fact that like that those values can be excluded discarded um m mitigated diluted sort of suggests they were never really values in the first place and i sometimes wonder if this um idea of like amplification amplifying one set of values while hiding another set managing in managing information you know like an obvious example and for all i know you so much of your content this might be from one of your articles but like sort of you know the um media appetite and obviously i think it's fair to say agenda to perhaps disproportionately condemn unvaccinated people while not reporting on the underfunding of hospitals you know when we did a video on that we like you say whatever you want about the unvaccinated thing i'm not like uh, who cares but it's definitely having an impact not funding hospitals so but one set of one strand of information makes it possible to persecute and damn some individuals or groups that don't really have power and the other strand the hospitals leads you pretty quickly to corporate funding in the interest of the powerful so what i'm beginning to feel is that 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 liberalism, you know, or the left or the Democratic Party or, you know, like it's always been a kind of a ersatz performative vehicle for sets of values. And, you know, look, you know, say in my country, there's been this like union movement over history. The weekend has been, you know, like there's been all sorts of achievements <laughs> of the labor movement. So I don't sort of dismiss that. But this modern incarnation of the left and in particular the center left, post Clinton, Blair left, it seems to be more and more about the presentation of information, the creation of an image, impressions, as opposed to any real values. And I again refer you to how I began this. If the core values can mutate, then they're not 
bloody core values at all, particularly when it's something like, oh, yeah, we don't need free speech. You know, like we can get rid of that. We can marginalize that. So do you what do you think that what does that to me? It suggests that the Democrat Party, the left, as let's call them for, for now, like are not really connected to a direct set of values. They're in the service of the same big business interests as we always sort of understood that the Republicans were. And they have to sort of mask that by emphasising the areas where they're different in order to sort of create the impression of difference at all. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. I think I think the, the Democratic Party and the people who vote for the Democratic Party um, are, are a little bit distinct. You know, you, you can trace back pretty pretty concretely what happened to the Democratic Party. And they got wiped out in 1984 and 1988. And the party leadership decided to make a change, um, you know, led by groups like the Democratic Leadership Council, uh, where Bill Clinton was a big figure, people like Bruce Babbitt. And their, their big insight was, we're getting killed in the area of fundraising when we go up against the Republicans. So we, we have to change our tune and start to take money from the same sources. And in order to do that, we have to change our, our platforms a little bit. So we're gonna be socially liberal, but economically we're going to be neoliberal, right? Which is a, you know, essentially uh, laissez-faire capitalists. I mean, they're or close to it. So they started taking a lot of money from Wall Street, uh, from the oil and gas industry, from pharmaceutical companies, from all those places, same places. And as you say, they became basically indistinct from the Republicans on those issues. Um, and the the rest of it, the social aspect of it, was really at that point, I I think, became just for show. Because if you're not really for um, sort of economic justice for for ordinary people, uh, then what does it really mean that you're pro-choice or you know you're for you're for gay rights? It's a good thing. Um, I'm not uh, not disputing that, but it it does mean that they made a really really um, a crucial internal compromise to their values that I think has expressed itself more and more lately. And now we're seeing it come out with areas like civil liberties, which were once sacrosanct um, and were a key dividing line in how we thought ourselves of, or how the Democratic Party thought of itself versus the Republicans. And now it's the opposite. Now, like, you know, the, the Democratic Party is, you know, the most pro-censorship party. They're, they're, the, they're the first people to be dismissive of the rights of the accused or, you know, or any of those things or habeas corpus. They don't, you know, what does that stuff matter? Like it's good people and bad people. That's all they matter. That's all it matters. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you're right. If, if, if they were able to, to, you know, con people uh, into buying this other version of liberalism that isn't all the way, um, then it was never really all that stable to begin with. Do you think that's amazing? Thanks for explaining that, because I didn't, I didn't know or understand that there were internal legislative or regulatory reformations that meant that there was a fundamental shift. And but even seeing how that 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 those shifts, that crucial internal compromise, as as you, your phrase there, mate, uh, like has evolved from the sort of early eighties into where we are now, like bloody hell, forty years later. Um, <laughs> um, and still in my lifetime, <laughs> like, um, like um, the the first piece that you've described, a willingness to get funding. You can sort of see, like, in an in an 
it's living in a culture that's ideologies are ultimately economically underwritten or the most significant decisions and the direction of power is ultimately economic you can see how in the end that would start to shape things but i suppose this sort of seemingly radical pivot around what seemed like fundamental ideas as you just sort of listed rights of the accused freedom of speech all these things like you know that i didn't even really recognize till you um till you listed them there that seems that seems extraordinary. I mean, in one sense, you could say that there must always have been an uneasy truce between the bourgeoisie and the working class or the intelligentsia and the working class and the idea that in the what sense in my country, and, I, and I'm sure there are a million ways in which our countries are distinct, is that in a way, the professional class, people that work, you know, in big cities and work for newspapers and media and law firms and, you know, the professional class of folk in cities... So that, what it feels like in this country is they don't like working class people and perhaps <laughs> like I've never liked them like sort of think like there's the people that get the bins and like are sort of shouting in the streets and driving white vans and being sort of we don't like them they sort of a bit smelly and like so when like Brexit and Trump and all that came along it's like yeah actually and so the only things that you know like that remain are we will support like you know as you said important issues gay rights uh, identity politics all things that like like I'm like sort of I'm totally down with this. I find myself watching media that I never would have watched before, particularly stuff online. And it's only when like you know, man, I can sit and watch Tucker Carlson and go, yep, yep, cool, cool, yeah, agree with that, agree with that. It's only when they start talking about the homeless or identity politics or whatever. I'm like, oh no, actually, no, 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 stop, no that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. But when they're talking about big business go out of control, the government's hypocrites, these people you can't trust them, CNN are on a black. I'm like, yeah, yeah, this, this is all cool. So um, I wonder. He, he has some funny bits too. Actually. Yeah, he cracks me up, man. Like, it's yeah. so annoying. Like, like I thought Trump was funny. Now Tucker's funny. I mean, I just don't know what's going on in the world <laughs> anymore. Um, so like, um, like yeah, I suppose I said a lot of stuff there. One is like, you know, is there just the, is it the professional class of people don't like sort of when it you know sort of working class people and in the countries we're talking about, the majority of those working people are still like white. You can probably you know you can sort of say really just in pure numbers. Um, you know, is that a significant thing? Has there always been a kind of antipathy? And then perhaps as it's come up, do you think that these divisive issues that have been exacerbated by COVID, Brexit, Trump being just a couple of examples, have somehow legitimised pre-existing uh, cultural tensions that were always there and just waiting to be somehow realised? Yeah, ab absolutely. I think, I think a ton of this has to do with class and sort of natural class antipathy. I mean, just in my business, um, when, when my father was coming up in journalism in the 60s and 70s, uh, journalists were not upper class people. They, the, it was more like a trade than a profession. Yeah. The, pe the people who went into, who worked in newspapers, they were you know, more like the sons and daughters of plumbers and electricians um, than they, you know, they were never Ivy League educated, mm. um, you know, rich people. And then, you know, a lot of things happened, including like the movie, All the President's Men, and it became like a sexy profession for, for upper class people to go into. By the time I went into journalism, um, it was all people like me. It was upper class kids uh, who had gone to good schools and whose attraction to the job was being close to figures in power. Um, they wanted to be kind of behind the rope line. They wanted to be, have a beer with Hillary Clinton's aide at night. You know, that was sort of their ambition in life was to socially hang out 
with all these people. And they did not have a connection to the ordinary working class person, which journalists once did because they were those people. Like that's where they came from. Yeah. Um, and so I saw this very graphically in 2016. You know, I covered Trump's campaign and we would be going you know, from place to place. And if you've ever been to a, a campaign event, the press is usually on a riser in the middle of the hall and they're kind of roped off and they look like zoo animals. You know, they're, they're on display in this, in this really uncomfortable way. And everybody inside the press section looks like an upper-class nerd. They, they, they wear the same smart glasses. They, they wear the same, you know, corny uh, urban outfitters outfits, right? And Trump picked up early in the campaign on the fact that the people in the hall did not like the people behind, on the riser. And wow. he started to, like a comedian, he started to feel out the, the crowd a little bit. And he would say things like, look at those bloodsuckers. You know, they hate me. They hate you. Um, you know, they, they they want nothing more than for me to lose, blah, blah, blah. And people would turn toward us. They throw stuff at us. And a lot of the people inside the press section couldn't handle it and didn't understand it. And I, I was saying, what what about this doesn't make sense? Of course they hate us. Uh, you know, they, they see us as people who write about them as hicks and losers and idiots and who are not on their side. And why wouldn't they hate us, right? And this is this is this is the fundamental cultural divide in America. It's between upper class, college educated, mostly cosmopolitan city people, and kind of everybody else. And there's the you know the 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 media class in particular just does it has no idea what people in red states or out there think like or what they're like, what what they care about, what their lives are like, what what working three jobs to to support kids without health insurance. Like they just don't know, you know? So there, there's a, there's this natural tendency to, to have all kinds of fantasies about what those people are like, and they're often wrong. Oh, that's a really cool story. And it's difficult, Matt, to not want to ask you a little more, because I'm reminded of that beautiful Rolling Stone article by the late, great Foster Wallace, when he talks, you know, when he's embedded there in the campaign trail with, um, what's your man, McCann, you know, and. He talks about the strata of the sort of surrounding caravan and like, you know, and how like it's the sort of he's hanging out with the techies that are with the film crews and how we get it's a better impression of how stuff's really going down than with the more sort of uh, the, the policy wonk dudes that are a little bit closer, even though some of them are described as pretty cool. And like the legacy media people that hang in. It's a beautiful, beautiful sort of favorite bits of his writing obviously i've not read the novels too hard just the journalism um, <laughs> they're, they're too big they're good as doorstops actually <laughs> yeah. christ what was he thinking um so like but when you were sort of in that situation and following trump like in retrospect i was doing videos when trump was campaigning like this guy he's a joke this is ridiculous so i was like you know i mean even though i really sort of like try to wear my heart on my sleeve when it comes to oh hey listen i'm from a normal background i'm from like the sort of uk equivalent of new jersey essex i'm from a normal background in spite of all the fancy looking stuff and like um you know i was you know dead wrong about the impact that dude was having and like yeah but in retrospect when you see how he's see him on fox with those you know like i'm friends with rosie o'donnell i love her but when he goes only rosie o'donnell or you know <laughs> you'd be in jail <laughs> like you know i'm like this geezer's fun 
funny, man. Like, you know, like it's sort of like, and like the, the instinct that he had to sort of start, you know, attacking and criticizing, as you say, the roped off press and media. What, like, you know, can you perhaps unpack for us how you think that that Fisher has subsequently affected America? And tell me about the phenomena of Trump and what instincts you think he had at play and how he's made the impact he had, how he's sort of somehow mobilized a populist movement that like, you know, loads of us would disagree with, but would have to, you know, at least recognize that he is addressing a neglected and significant demographic. And I'll just add this because this ain't a question. This is an observation that sometimes when you talk about Democrats like that and that kind of, um, you know, that sort of the, the disconnect, I feel like, wow, maybe the whole social justice component is just a recognition that, right, we've got us, we've got the cities, they're always, we need to pick off some of those working people. Perhaps we could just do it on the basis of, you know, if we get all the people that are not straight, if we get all the people that are not white, if we get all the people, then that'll be enough to keep them hicks down. You know, heaven forbid the hicks and the gays of all classes and the non-white folk of every class came together because then our show would be over. Yeah, absolutely. But the problem is they 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 never they never want to go through the effort of learning how to talk to people who aren't from their class. So <clears throat> they inevitably come off as imperious and superior and off-putting, and their ideas are always not quite um, as impactful as they think they're going to be because they come they're they're often condescending. But to get back to your original question, like the first one of the first times I saw Trump was in a place called Plymouth, New Hampshire. And um, he was giving a speech and I, I had been primed to expect that his whole thing was going to be about immigrants and was going to be full of this sort of racist uh, demagoguery. And there was a little bit of that in there. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of the speech was, was very clever. Like he, he said something, he had just been in a debate um, where uh there was a pharmaceutical lobbyist. Well, actually, Jeb Bush, uh, his campaign manager, his financial director was Woody Johnson, who is the uh, CEO of Johnson & Johnson, the pharmaceutical company. And he had been in the crowd during the uh, debate, if I remember correctly. Um, but Trump said to the crowd, he says, you think Jeb Bush is going to uh, lower your pharmaceutical prices? Of course not. He's got, he's got a, a pharmaceutical CEO running his campaign. Of course, he's not the guy. And then he says, Jeb Bush is no different from Hillary Clinton. They're bought by the same people. Um, they, they're funded by the same people. And I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm looking around at the crowd and I'm seeing that they're they're completely glued to what he was saying. I mean, you, you've probably you, 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 you see this with performers. Some people have a sense for how to grab the room and some people just don't. Right. And he really did. And I thought to myself, this is this is going to work. Um, and I and I remember I wrote this piece saying you know Trump Trump is onto something he's 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 clicking with people with messages that basically the system is not designed to address their their problems because you know there really is kind of a conspiracy of powerful interests at the top that's that runs both parties and he's he's uh, he's grabbed that message and he's running with it no one else is going to is going to touch it um, except Bernie Sanders. Uh, who is being suppressed by his own party, right? So um, it, it, later on, I was sort of talked out of the idea that he was going to win by some Democratic pollster, and I, that was a huge mistake in my journalism career. But but I think what what Trump did that you know was unique was that he he listened essentially. You know, I mean, he 
he could see that there was this tremendous amount of anger out there. Um, he connected with ordinary people because he has the same tastes that, that a lot of ordinary people do. Um, a lot of people think of Trump as like, that's what I would do if I had a billion dollars, you know, like that, that, that's the house that I'd I would run live like in. Beauty you know? contests. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So yeah, no, he just, I think he just listened. He, he just did a simple thing. He, he listened and he clued into the, the basic stupidity of the political system. And he had, he had the, the balls to call it out. And at that point, it's not hard. Like, you know, you get in, you talked about the animal energy with which he dismissed, dismissed um, Jeb Bush in a debate. Like once you have that, that central truth, all these other, these characters like Marco Rubio and, you know, uh, and Bush and, uh, and Ted Cruz, they become just easy to dispense with um, yeah. because they got nothing, you know, in, in, in the battle to come back at, uh, at you with. Um, so, yeah, he was he was onto something. But, you know, unfortunately, he was kind of the wrong person to tote that message. But but it's an electric message, which is why it's been so hard to suppress it. It is an electric message. And you're right. It still it still resonates. And like, you know, I know from my content that like like a lot of people that watch my content love him. Like and I and I have to sort of like negotiate with that. I go, oh wow, man, they love. And it's only you know, it's only when I listen to you, man, and you go, he calls out this Johnson and Johnson stuff. And I always tell them directly. I go, like, listen, you know me, I'm not down that path. You know, in fact, I, but I'm not Democrat. How could I be anymore? And you know, charisma is, is almost a biochemical accident, a social phenomena that you can't, you know, that it's either there or it isn't. And as you say, the ability to grab a room, but the intelligence there to note the Johnson and Johnson connection is one thing. But I suppose the most significant thing is that he was hitting a target that nobody else could hit because it was he was telling the truth and it was fundamentally against the interests of the other candidates whether they were republican candidates in the primary or ultimately who he faced in the democrats because that their own set of interests and biases prejudices and relationships would not let them address that and 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 the fact is that that the democrat still and even they're sort of the people that kind of support the Democrat Party in a tribalistic ongoing way, like maybe on late night TV or whatever, still are unable to go, all right, the issue with Trump was, is he was able to say a whole bunch of stuff that was true and we could, we totally outflanked us because we aren't willing to break down those relationships to end the dirty money, to end the lobbying. All that drain, the swamp stuff is going to hit home, even whether or not Trump delivered on that. And we've had four years of Trump, so we're in a better position to evaluate. But like, you know, we, we couldn't hit him up because we would like, you know, when I saw Marianne Williamson coming here and I goes, do you um, think that ultimately, and obviously, you know, with your knowledge, experience, connections and research, this is, I guess, pretty obvious to you. But like, goes, like I goes, do you think that the, the Democrats would rather lose to Trump with Hillary than win against Trump with Bernie? And she said, yes, that is oh. the impression. That <laughs> oh, of course. Of course they would rather lose because the, the issue here is not is is not the power of the White House. It's the sanctity of all those sinecures in Washington. Uh, all the thousands of people who depend upon the existing uh, sort of status quo power structure to keep their jobs at think tanks and law firms and lobbying firms and, um, you know, research institutes and uh, and then there's the whole sort of permanent bureaucracy of the uh, of the government as well. The, you know, the cycle uh, just in terms of like, for instance, the financial services industry, 
you know, you, you, you go to work for a couple of years in the SEC, you leave, you get a $3 million a year partnership at a corporate defense firm that helps defend the same companies that you, that you used to prosecute against. That whole system gets upset if you put Bernie Sanders in office because he's going to wipe out all those people and replace them with actual advocates for, for voters, which you can't have. Like, that's unacceptable. So it's much better from their perspective to lose and retain the system uh, than it is to win, but lose lose all those rice bowls. If if, you, if that makes any any sense, uh, yeah. so she, I think she's right, absolutely right about that. Do you uh, like just while we're still on Trump? Like you've sort of addressed his ability to connect with people because of those tastes and his ability to sort of sort of manage rhetoric and a, and a kind of narrative. Could he? Could you speak in particular about his ability to control media? Is there anything in that and influence media? I mean, oh, you've already said he's kind of nullified them by sort of declaring them enemies, which is in itself, I suppose, kind of brilliant. Um, is there anything else that you think he did that was in particular important specifically that you know people should be looking to emulate or learn from? Except, well. I mean, the first thing is that he, he made everybody a ton of money. Uh, <laughs> you know, Trump, every news station that covered Trump did boffo ratings. And yeah, you, know, you have to remember the news media is a business that has been in decline, uh, you know, financially for like three decades straight. Um, ever since the Internet appeared, we've, we've been losing because we've been steadily losing advertising revenue. Trump appears in the summer of 2000. 2015. And I remember talking to other reporters and having them say things to me like, you know, my editors are stoked. We're doing numbers like we've never done before. You know, you know, you, you write anything about Trump, negative, positive. Uh, the clicks are incredible. Like people watch it. So he had this magnetism, it, it, this car wreck element that is so crucial to how we sell news in America um, that that was really dynamic. And that made it impossible for for news stations to not cover them. The problem is they just, they, they did not know how to deal with the Trump phenomenon. Um, you know, they, they couldn't speak to why he was doing so well, because it would have revealed their own weaknesses. I mean, part of what Trump was saying is the press lies to you. The press is in bed with uh, all of these companies. They're part of this triumvirate of oligarchical powers, you know, the donors, the political parties, and the media that has sort of stage managed the electoral process for forever, and you can't trust them. And the most of the news media didn't know how to handle that. The way to handle that was to admit that it's true, uh, and to say, "Look, this guy, he's 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 lifted the the lid on things that are true about American society, and he's scoring with it." And you can either deal with it on those terms or you can pretend it's not happening, but pretending is not going to work like uh, they thought it would. Um, and they were they were they were so confident about it. They would say things like Trump will play in the NBA before he'll be the nominee of the Republican Party. Like that was an actual line in one of those sites. Um, but uh, they, they were wrong, you know, so they just decided to not deal with the reality of why he was doing well. And, you know, uh, just quickly, of, of course, he turned out to be insincere about so many things like, you know, I, I watched him bash Goldman Sachs, you know, on the campaign trail. And I thought, well, that's interesting because I had covered Goldman for, you know, 
eight years. So it was a source of real interest to me. And then as soon as he becomes president, he puts five Goldman people in his in his cabinet. So that tells you a lot about, you know, what what he was actually all about. But, you know, he he saw that the, the public was responding negatively to just the name Goldman Sachs, which was new on the Republican side. And the reporters just didn't want to go near any of that material, which is, I think, a, a huge strategic mistake on their part. America, obviously, listen to you describe this, Matt. It makes me understand that America, that, that Trump induced a kind of a, a, an American catharsis that he m- made us recognize there is wide scale corruption that cannot be addressed, a, a, a huge demographic that is being neglected, and that the media is that media greed amplified his message. All these three things, these were all latently present anyway, awaiting a phenomenon of that nature. In the subsequent election that, you know, Biden won and which Trump uh, supporters will attest was, a you know, like a stolen election and that ongoing thing. And like that, it's almost like they're tr- like that both sides are kind of trying to continue to vivify and uh, animate the, the sort of, um, what do I want to say, the, 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 the sort of the outlines of that old argument. Uh, in the you know, for example, the the way that the Capitol uh, January sixth stuff is sort of either dismissed or amplified according to sort of preference. And what I I, I feel, mate, is like when when Biden was you know campaigning, I felt like the, the the appetite of the Democratic Party was to go to sleep even after the Trump thing. It was not like okay, well, like as you just said, let's take on board all this stuff, you know, the corruption, the neglect, the media greed, and. Let's present like it's the same in this country. It's like the rise of, you know, what would be called nationalism or the right or whatever. I feel like that's the left's fault. That's your fault. You're yielding all these people. They should be with you. They should. That's a disgrace that these people aren't like, no, I'm going with them lot. They're the people that care about equality. They're the people that care about ordinary working people. They're the people that care about social infrastructure and building, you know, good lives for ordinary people and rights and for, you know, like, but that's because that's so much as that of that has been seeded. There's nowhere to go. So, I wonder, do you think that Trump's success suggests that a political figure or movement could rise using the same tools that Trump used or comparable tools, but perhaps without the air, the aspects of Trump that people like you and I would say, well, you know, the misogyny or, you know, like what that, that kind of stuff. Like, do you think it, I mean, to me, it would seem pretty obvious that the answer to that is yes. And why is no one doing that? And could you, in the same way that Trump went, oh, hang on a minute, they don't like this Johnson Johnson stuff and this big pharma stuff and they want controls on drug prices and they don't like that the big banks are dominating policy and all the stuff that Bannon was great at, at pointing out what Obama did, you know, in response to 2000. Do you think that that suggests that you could almost have a popular political movement and say, we will do these things, these 10 things. Forget those guys. They're not going to do it for you. Forget the media. They're going to start, you know, criticizing me tomorrow. So, you know, that's going to happen. But this is what we will do if elected. We'll transform the political landscape. We'll we'll turn off the tap, but, you know, and we'll close that revolving door and all of that. Do you think that what he did suggests that's possible? And could it succeed? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And absolutely. I mean, uh, I think the the Sanders phenomenon is proof of that. Uh, Bernie came very close. I mean, he he came extraordinarily close, uh, extraordinarily close to winning the nomination. Now, whether he wouldn't or not, he would have beaten Trump is a different question. But um, but just to give you an, an example of how uh 
how surprising his rise was. You know, I knew Bernie fairly well. I had done a story with him 10 years ago and was pretty close to his people. I hung around with him for a month, um, uh, walking when, when he was still in the house, uh, watching him operate because he was trying to teach people how laws get made which is gives you an insight into his character he was not afraid to let a reporter uh be at his side all the time uh on the record which is very unusual um anyway when when he ran for president in 2016 he had zero expectation of winning what he was trying to do was make a point about essentially about the financial control of the party uh by these, you know, big banks and uh, other interests. Um, but he did a he did an early event in I think it was Portland, Maine, and there were so many people uh, that showed up that Bernie Bernie thought it was a once in a lifetime like happening, and he actually ordered his aides to go out and get a whole bunch of uh, steno books so he could take down all their names because he thought this is this, this is my one shot at a big crowd. Uh, he was so surprised by the reaction that like that that was how he he responded. But he he too had tapped into something, um, even though he was giving ver a very similar message to people like Dennis Kucinich who had gone nowhere in the polls previously um but it, it absolutely worked and beyond that in 2020 he he uh proved something that was crucial to what you're talking about um which is about the commercial viability of that kind of politician now the argument against somebody like sanders previously had always been oh well we can't do that because then we won't be able to compete financially um with you know, let's say a Republican who's backed by Wall Street and a bunch of oil and gas companies. But Sanders became the top fundraiser in 2020 in the Democratic primary just by getting small donations from people. So that was a proof of concept that this kind of politician can succeed. Now, Sanders is eventually flamed out for a variety of reasons, and the party basically slammed the door on him and so did the media and he had a lot of things going against him but if they were smart enough to recognize like this has been my complaint with the democratic party always if they were if they would would just do a couple of things for people that were decent like i don't know give them cheaper health care you know give them a little bit more job security uh you know not let private equity titans like Mitt Romney pay a 14% tax rate when teachers pay twice that or whatever it is like stuff like that. If they were able to do a couple of things, they would never lose another election because, because the overwhelmingly people would support that, but they just can't bring themselves to, to leave the sponsorship of these big companies and cross those big donors. And so they are, they have ha handicapped themselves essentially. Um, and I, I think, I think sometime, at some point they're going to come to the realization that in order to win and stave off what might be an even worse eventuality uh, on the right, um, we're going to have to actually try to represent our voters instead of our donors. Um, and, and that's really just not that hard to do. Um, <laughs> it's, just, it's just a moral decision they have to come to, uh, but they, they refuse to do it. And I, I, I'm not really sure why, but, yes. they, but they won't. It sort of suggests that there is a kind of a um, an irrefutable intransigence at the sort of core of politics that's you know transcendent of the you know the kind of 
party identity politics we've been discussing you know they just simply can't they won't those interests are dominant you know in ways that you sort of consistently sort of write about what do you think has been um revealed during the pandemic about the relationship between big business and media and and uh, about the kind of i don't know government transparency appetites for control how how, how has this been what has this revealed to you and about willingness to pursue particular narratives and all of that is that's got to be answered in 60 seconds actually man that's quite a, there's a time constraint on that one oh Okay. No, it's not. Well, that's a joke. That's a joke. Uh, you could uh, it could take the rest of the podcast or your life to answer that. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I mean, you, you've been you've been talking about this in all of your uh, all of your shows, so you know, I don't I don't have to tell you. But uh, interesting, I, I, interestingly, I'm writing a book now, basically about profiteering during the the COVID era, and you know, if you actually watch, if you if you look at the news, it's it's there, but it's not prominent. Like all of these industries have had the two best years of their lives in 2020 and 21. Uh, private equity uh, took over a trillion dollars in companies last year. In other words, hostile takeover artists, Gordon Gecko, those people had their best year last year. Banks had their best year in 2020. Uh, the defense industry had record stock buybacks in 2020 because they were given this ridiculous uh, gift during the bailouts, like they were, all their contracts were accelerated. Um, the pharmaceutical industry, obviously, you know, the, the Pfizer did $82 billion in profits alone last year, and a little under half of that was just the vaccine. Uh, so, all the, 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 the core of all of this is they designed the bailout in such a way that if you own financial assets, you got richer, and if you didn't, if you're somebody who rents a house um, and doesn't own anything that appreciates on paper, you got poorer. Um, and that is the that is the big story of the pandemic. And the, we are not hearing about it. Instead, what you're seeing is this incredibly intense effort to crack down and and vilify the ordinary person who, who happens to be the, the, you know, the ones who are suffering the most right now. I mean, I interviewed some people who were laid off from a, a big retail chain uh, last week. Um, no, they weren't laid off last week, but I interviewed them last week who, you know, couldn't afford to stay in, in their apartments, even though the the laws here prevent them from being evicted because they, they would have to pay back that money eventually. And so they had to move their whole family into this crappy little trailer their family happened to own in the woods, um, you know, overrun with you know, insects and mold and all this other stuff. That's what's going on in, in regular America. Like it's, it, it's really bad out there. Uh, but instead what we're hearing in the news is not about this struggle of what life is like for ordinary people. It's, oh, it's those unvaccinated people um, who are causing all of these problems and we got to do something about it. And there's no punishment that's too, you know, that's that's too rough for them i mean you, you did that hilarious video about that woman in australia you know them tucking her into the the truck with the 10 lungfuls of air in there like there's a hostility behind that that's just extraordinary like where's that hostility for the for the person uh, who uh, you know the billionaire who tripled his net worth um during the pandemic mainly you know, through money that came from the Federal Reserve Bank, right? Like this is a person who essentially took 
public assets, increase this personal wealth that he didn't need already. Uh, why are we not mad at that person? No, we're going to be mad instead at this other person who, for whatever reason, we think that they're they're ignorant or whatever it is. Um, they're the enemy. And so I think I think it's a misdirection campaign. Look, on the vaccination issue, I have I'm vaccinated, I'm boosted. Like, you know, I I to this point, I believe that the, the vaccine does what they say it does most recently, which is, <laughs> you know, that it, it prevents death and it, it'll help you a little bit. Um, but that doesn't mean I hate people who have some other feeling about it. Like, that's crazy. Where does that even come from? Do you have any idea? I mean, like, I, I know you've, you've talked about this, but it's it's a fascinating phenomenon for me, this, this, this idea of hating somebody who has a different way of looking at things. We, we um, start off like because of your the nature of your expertise and experience we talk about the things that are, you know are, are, are by your standards sort of broad but you know quite particular in terms of we're talking about you know democrats versus republicans but when you get into like talking about you know in what in the same america under the same flag there's these f family moving into the trailer with the mold and the insects and there's these billionaires tripling their wealth Meanwhile, the media diligently does the job of condemning a group of people while there is an underlying hostility. The thing that sort of interests me and that I'm always trying to find interfaces between is what is the reality of people's emotional lives and where like because all culture is an expression ultimately of human consciousness and how it meets environment i'm not you know trying not to be too woo woo in spite of the beads and the beard and the tattoos and the various <laughs> signifiers of my true colors you know but what i feel is like that unless politics becomes a representation because like you know already in your little bit excellent description of the phenomena of trump it's clear that sort of anger and truth and integrity and authenticity and taste and all like these are like all i believe drawn from the emotional palette where it meets culture and i feel that in order to mobilize yourself so aggressively in order to condemn people for a minor difference whether that's opinion their opinion on pro-life pro-choice sort of having a gun in the house taking a vaccine all of the things that people are willing to hate each other for you need i think to be able to manage and control the way that people react to information and the way that people see each other and like I guess someone that's as um, uh, diligent, well-resourced, and well-researched as you, uh, like I, I wonder how you feel about the sort of the comp like one of the things I'm trying to do, mate, is to talk to people who are sort of you know let's say like you know Trump-leaning populists. And sort of say, well, look, you know, there's this way of going as well. You know, like, you know, they probably not down with Chomsky. And like, yeah, I know that Chomsky is sort of a big influence on you. And, you know, maybe they wouldn't be into Bernie. And but like you can see how sort of like, you know, Bernie would have perhaps, well, in my opinion, provided better outcomes for the kind of people that were like that felt um, neglected and that Trump was able to reach through rhetoric and personal appeal and his willingness to uh, publicly condemn the institutions that are, you know, actually responsible for the conditions of many American lives. Um, and what I suppose I'm interested in creating really is a sort of um, an easy rubric where we can go, look, this is what's happening. These things aren't going to change with either the Democrats or the Republicans. These are the things that sort of could change. This is not too radical that it's going to tip your country like over because it's sort of overnight wiping out a whole bunch of institutions. But it will represent a significant enough change for us to sort of get on a journey together where we're talking about 
an entire, you know, new cultural and political models. Why are we still pretending that this is, you know, two or three hundred years ago, and we need to send someone on horseback to Washington or London to represent the views of a community? Well, I think that you know, devolution where possible, democracy where possible, self-governance where possible. It's so difficult to sort of manage the um, tension between, you know, the requirements of a government in order to protect the interests of people against, you know, predatory threats, whether those are external, ideological, or fine, you know, but but increasing. Those threats are financial within the country and are supported by that government. So I, 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 that's what I'm trying to work out is how do you actually start to sort of you know, deal with the reality of them people moving, you know, like ordinary Americans impoverished by this crisis, uh, an elite class of uh, businesses and interests enriched by this crisis and present people with, look, if we go this way, is you know, God, it's going to be challenging. But most of the resistance and mud that's getting thrown is like, you know, the conservatism, which is now ironically most practiced by what would have been the anti-conservative party. They're the most authoritarian. They're the ones that don't want debate or conversation or communication and want censorship. You know, like I feel that the 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 position that the Democrats have taken up, the inability of the Republicans ultimately ever to sort of go, listen, we're down with you guys because of their historic ties and their sort of, you know, their inability really to deal with management of wealth, say, should we call it, um, being sort of careful about the kind of language that I would use, like, means that there's got to be a bloody territory. There must be a territory. There must be because no one's doing the stuff that matters. And like, you know, one of Chomsky's sort of most famous quotes, all the areas where both parties agree, you have no choice at all. And that's such a significant area. So I suppose what interests me about populism, when Bannon said, um, you know, we're not, you know, populism is the next movement. We're just discussing whether it's left-wing or right-wing populism now. We've not really, other than Syriza and Podemos in Spain, which were both like, you know, easily sucked back into sort of centrist, neoliberal kind of movements in th those countries, it seemed to me from a cursory glance, it's a few articles telling me roughly that, like, you know, or, you know, what's happened in your country post-Tea Party into Trump. You know, I feel that there's a real opportunity and that we've got to sort of start forming what the territory is and being robust enough to start presenting it and recognizing what's going to come back when when that movement begins and it seems to me that you're one of the most well-positioned people to start outlining where it should be going and is that something that's on your mind mate uh yeah although i think you you're, you're doing a you're doing more of what concretely needs to happen in order for that to take place which is create the space where people can talk about this um, I think one of the things that's been most destructive in the United States is this media environment where the whole notion of discussing things is is essentially forbidden. Like the, the idea that we can, you know, that, that those who watch CNN could entertain anything that, you know, is talked about on Fox and vice versa, that those things, those areas do not mix. That is that's crucial to keeping this whole edifice of stupidity up. I think I think you need to create that area of, of discussion and uh, free inquiry, and you know shows like yours are doing it. Um, but it's also why there's such hostility uh, towards anybody who tries uh, to go that way. You know, it, I don't know if this answers your question, but there's been another in interesting change in our business, which um, I think accounts for part of the uh, inability of people to communicate. Uh, when, again, when I was coming up through journalism, when my father worked in it, 
the whole idea of uh, a reporter, a reporter was supposed to be a thick skinned, tough person, right? Like this was the person who stood in front of the burning tank and was like, whatever, um, you know, you, you, they were out there in the hurricane. They, they sat there, you know, with, with the terrorists, uh, you know, and, and did the interview, not worried about whether or not they were going to be taken hostage. And they were always cool and calm and collected in the, in the face of crisis. And that's why people like Walter Cronkite consistently were voted the most trusted people in America. Um, it's because of that air of, yeah, everything's fine. It's cool. Let, let's just, here's the information. Let's give it to you. And then you got, everybody can sort it out. We made a switch again in the Trump era. Now, every time you turn on television, it's somebody freaking out about something. They're, the emotional tenor of politics is panic always, <laughs> uh, and, right? I mean, every time, whenever you watch the news, it's a million boxes telling you, oh my God, like shit's happening. Like you're, you're gonna die like eight different ways. And it's, it's a permanent freak out. And in that environment, it becomes very, very difficult for people to say, all right, well, okay, what's true, what's not true? Where, can, where, where are there areas of agreement that you know we can maybe settle on um and, and that's i think by design the the panic is designed to keep people from talking to each other and if you can turn the panic down i mean no matter how bad things get panic doesn't help right like you know if you add just mindless fear and running around in circles it's not going to make the pandemic go away any faster you still have to you know be a human being and look at the problem and say well how do we fix this and I think that's what's missing is just this this space where people who, by the way, you know, in real life, when they're thrown together in a, in a, in a disaster, and I've seen this everywhere from Iraq to Hurricane Katrina, like I was at all those places, people tend to be very rational, composed and cooperative when they're actually thrown into uh, a disaster together. Like they will work together, you know, um, in, when they're in a, a real crisis. It's when they're in on the internet, uh, and it's not really reality that they become totally irrational and intractable and impossible. And I, I think again, that's by design. They, they, they want people agitated, unable to compromise, unable to think clearly. And they're doing a hell of a job at it. And so I don't know if I answered that, if you answered that question correctly, but I, but I, I think what you're doing, one of the reasons that your show is so successful is that you're addressing really serious problems, but you're, but you, and you always have that salutation at the beginning about how, you know, we're going to get there together. It's positive. Like what, why can't we have that on the news, by the way? Like what, what, why, why is that message forbidden? What's what's dangerous about that? And it's only when you really think about it that you realize what is dangerous about that for certain people. Oh, my God. That's so cool. And also, I suppose, you know, like we all accept road rage and even, you know, personally, I'm more in likely in a car to go, oh, fuck you. But, you know, like because it's disembodied. I'm not dealing with a human being. I'm not looking at someone's face. It's a vehicle. I hate that thing getting in my way. <laughs> and like the Internet's even more removed than that. It's just a sort of a mass of nothing that I'm can just freely express myself into and this sort of that's always what 
One of the things I dislike most about the systems of governance that abide is the fundamental assumption that human beings are bad. That's the sort of unwritten idea or the unspoken idea. You, people, you can't trust them. They're horrible bastards. And of course, all of us, like as individuals and as cultures, uh, cultures are, are flawed and capable of selfishness and cruelty and you know and monstrosity. But that's oh, yeah. that's not the principle, right? Let's set up our systems on that basis and see who that benefits most and who is advantaged by that and who is disadvantaged. Like a little bit of faith, <laughs> a little bit of love. Right. And I think perhaps it's difficult to get there if you have a purely sort of, uh, if you forgive the clumsiness of this, uh, a purely rationalist approach to reality. This is what can be measured because like when I think reality becomes about only which can be measured and does not include, look, there's a whole bunch of stuff we're never really going to understand and some of that's the most important things that we're ever going to know or feel that you tend to prioritize uh, disciplines and ideals that are like you know well there's been real progress in technology there's been real progress in some areas of medicine so this is we're living in a progressive society but we're not recognizing that that, that progress is concomitant with deterioration in other areas perhaps essentially deteriorative deleterious to our like our nature somehow when you look at where it's placed us in opposition to one another lost in a nihilistic binary morass screaming at people that if you actually were in a hurricane with them or in a road accident i do a bit of stand-up where i talk about there being a road accident and I stopped like the, the, the drive guy that was driving me I was on the way to a show like a Muslim guy and we stopped to help the woman and then other people start helping like Eastern Europeans and like people of different colours and classes and you know everyone's just like alright oh, you alright man everyone's just joining in and my driver said like you know if you leave people alone if you leave us alone, we'll just get on with it and help each other. And like probably everyone in that little group, like, you know, like we'd be stoked. Like, well, he's a Muslim. He shouldn't even be here. They're immigrants. They're, <laughs> <laughs> he's famous. I hate all these people. <laughs> you know, like, he's a goddamn celebrity parasite, probably in the Illuminati. You know, like, you know, like so right. the whole thing is also stoked. And you're right when you say that it's not a coincidence that that it's become a, a taboo to say like, above all else, let's treat each other humanely and lovingly. Let's not get off on this stuff don't perv on the differences you know because that's 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 a requirement of stasis is that yeah absolutely and and you're you're absolutely right and i think there's additionally it starts to make sense why uh humor is is uh is so uh looked down upon now right i mean because that is such a uniting force right uh for people it's such a way of of getting them out of the hostility space. And you think about people like, you know, Richard Pryor, who was a hero of mine growing up, right? America, 60s, 70s, incredibly racially tense place. Where was the one place you could go and, and see, you know, white people and black people getting along, right? It was in the crowd of a Richard Pryor uh, audience, right? Like they were all laughing at the same jokes. Humor is, you know, it's inherently uh, iconoclastic. It, it makes the whole the whole emperor has no clothes thing is, is an element of it, which is why, you know, people in power or authoritarian governments always frown upon humor because it, may, it reduces them to the same level of absurdity that we all live on. Right. Um, but it also has this power to to free people to you know, to not take themselves so seriously or not take their trouble so seriously or to 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 be a little bit braver in the face of, um, 
you know, difficulty or, uh, you know, what's a, a seemingly unsolvable problem. So all those things like, you know, humor, conversation, art, music, um, it's, it, we, we're just not seeing it right now. And it's, we actually kind of need it, I think. Wow, well, yeah, they're uh, unifying you know? and a celebration of beauty and right. kind of a mutu mutuality, if, there's, if there is such a word. And I was thinking even just from an evolutionary perspective that laughter, even though we're talking in the case of sort of pride, even though there's a huge physical component, uh, that even though the laughter is uh, solicited linguistically is a pre-linguistic response. And obviously that's the sort of the discovery of a baseline that eliminates all of the sort of paraphernalia of culture. Um, what's that? Like it was Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, who I would disagree with on so, so many things, particularly as I'm like, a, you know, died in the wall religious zealot. Like, uh, but like when he says like, you know, saying a baby is a Muslim or a Christian baby, Baby. It's like saying this baby is a Seahawks fan or this baby is a Raider. It's <laughs> <laughs> a really funny thing to sort of say about a baby. That it would, this is what it believes in, I reckon. Look at it. <laughs> like, you know, like, and I like the idea that we can sort of, you know, through art, perhaps the function of art as a, you know, a sort of, um, um, what do I want to say, as an ancillary to sort of spiritual life and an expression perhaps of spiritual life, if you mean spirit as the sort of, you know, I don't know, the seat of consciousness of personal sovereignty is its potential to locate all of us at that point and from time to time we have to touch that otherwise it's just like all i am is well i'm these several i've given, given this identity and I, I hate all those people i disagree with that and like if people exactly. keep calcifying that and pounding us with it how are we ever gonna like sort of say oh bloody hell are we gonna change stuff or are we gonna just keep sort of you know, being in this perverse celebration of difference you know yeah, no, and that's why I think that the you see this. I don't know. I don't know if it's intentional or how exactly it works, but there's this kind of effort to smash at all the things that unify people, right? You know, art, music, humor, uh, you know, discussion, all those things. They're they're all kind of taboo in this weird way. Like in the the, the internet, whether by design or whether this is the way it works commercially, it kind of drives us into these corners where. We're given an identity. We're constantly fed stuff that makes us more like that. Um, and that's the space that we inhabit. And there, I know that the algorithms are designed to prevent people from uh, even viewing ideas outside their normal spectrum of thinking, right? The whole, the whole idea of how uh, the newsfeed works on Facebook, for instance, or you know, how, how any of these uh, internet algorithms function is to put you in a space and then continually feed you material that they, you've already been proven that you to respond to in a certain way. Um, so they don't want to expand your horizons. They want to narrow your horizons. Like that's how, that's how the mechanism works. And uh, I think that's deeply unhealthy. Like the things that are interesting about life are the things that that connect us um you know on, on, in a beautiful way right like a like a great book or a great painting or or you know a, a brilliant comedian or, or you know anything that's what culture is and they're and they're and they're lashing out at it or they're or they're, or they're trying to hmm. they're trying to prevent it from growing in a healthy way and hmm. i i just don't understand why how long that they think that this is going to 
continue. That's pretty interesting because, like, you know, I've always thought that, oh, the culture war, it's um, it's a distraction, it's a sideshow. But when you think of it, a war in a culture is a pretty significant thing because the end point of that is a kind of um, a culture is by almost, well, of course, literally embedded in its name is movement and growth, you know. And if you, it becomes stagnant due to an inability to communicate, an inability to rub up against difference, and you know, then it's going to die. Is like that's right. what, you know, that's what's going to happen, and even in the, you know recently, like when I just saw the Whoopi Goldberg thing, she said a crazy thing about like the Holocaust or whatever. Um, but you know, like this is like, well, you said that, you've said that, that's done. You know, what I mean, now it's like, no, 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 Whoopi Goldberg's got you know, like the whole thing gets. You can feel like this hostility you're talking about that they bundled them people into the van with. That hostility is now just it's like like locust on everything, you know. Yeah, and what is that? You know, uh, I I just, uh, I don't know if you've had this experience. I have, people I've known my whole life, you know, suddenly in like the last five years or so have adopted this much more militant stance towards things. And, you know, you, you try to have a dinner conversation where you're just having a good time and talking about stuff, making jokes, and somehow it it always turns to those people who are screwing up things for everybody. And it's an ugly conversation. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not fruitful, but they've got people in this place. That's just full of hostility that they can't resolve, you know? And, um, and it's so, it's so unfortunate because I think, you know, one of the things that used to be so great about life was, uh just the ability to relax and and enjoy all this uh you know the things that people the one th- one great thing about mass culture is that it puts you in touch with so many different types of um you know art and ideas and uh, other things and they've they've taken that from us and made it a negative and i i just wish that that weren't the case this march the homogeneity that benefits mass corporation that benefits benefits mass production that benefits mass entertainment you know all of us instinctively we see that bar in star wars and all like wow look at that place it'd be so cool to go there's all these different aliens and species i love that no those people over there they're probably not vaccinated those people over there they're pro-gun get those fuckers out you know like oh, 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 oh no shit kind of got star wars Although I think someone did get shot in that scene. I think it was Greedo. So you, you've got to be careful. Greedo did get shot. By hand yeah. solo under the mm-hmm. table. So that, And I think there was also was a stabbing quite. Luke Skywalker was bullied at the bar. Maybe that place wasn't as great as I was making it out. Mind you, but Ben Kenobi did say it was it a hive cool. of villainy yeah. before they even went in. No, it looked cool from the outset. Mate, can I cover these things but, um, sure. before we go? Right, so check out the some of our questions. Look, is the mainstream media deliberately polarizing audiences? God, we've really covered that. What can we learn from mm-hmm. Trump's presidency and his relationship with media we've really dealt with that are there any media outlets we can trust well so that's a that's an interesting question because i um i don't think of it that way oh. as, as a reporter um i think when you're trying to figure out what's true and what's not what the, the best thing to do is always take uh all the information that you see and evaluate it and then in the aggregate try to figure out what's correct um so to a degree you, you can trust cbs and the new york times there are you know i talk, remember talking to noam chomsky about this who was very upset that people had received his book manufacturing consent and they had understood it 
to mean don't trust journalists or don't trust the media. And he, and he said, look, the New York Times is full of facts. And it is. Uh, but you have to be an educated media consumer. You have, you have to be able to um, check, uh, you know, to make sure that, that certain things that people are saying, um, you know, can be verified or that they ring true or any of those things. So, yes, I, I, I do trust to a degree, all the usual media sources, but I check, you know, it's like, mm. that's that, that uh, saying, trust in Allah, but tie your camel, yeah. you know, um, I, I think, you know, and as a journalist, when I do, when I'm, when I'm working on a story initially and starting from zero and I don't understand the subject at all is I'll call 20 people and, you know, and I'll, I'll give them all the same, the same question. And then from all those answers, I'll say, well, which one of those people sounded the mo like the most convincing? Uh, how often do I hear the same response? You know, all these things tell you stuff. Um, but I, I, what I definitely wouldn't tell people is to just trust one one source. I know that's a long-winded answer. No, it's but, a really good answer, but, actually, because you sort of said, it was like, don't be lazy. It's like, don't expect right, exactly. the world to, you know, like you're going to have to go through some sort of little process of evaluation, which actually makes really good sense. It's a great answer. Do journalists know they're partaking in biased and partisan reporting or are they blinded by their ideology and the heat of the political landscape? I, I think most of them uh, don't get it. Mm. I think most of them think that they're, that they're um, doing the job fairly. Now there's there is a new movement towards something called moral clarity, uh, where the idea is we're, we're you're consciously trying to steer um, audiences in a certain direction because we know certain tr things are more true than others, and this is a reaction against the old kind of journalism that we used to see, where it was Democrat says X, Republican says Y, and you sort it out right. And the, the response to that now is, well, we know the Republican is lying, so let's, why, why even bother including that quote? Or let's, what, if we do include it, let's surround it with contextualizing stuff so that people know that it's a lie. Um, you know, I, 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 what I think people don't get, I think a lot of the people in this business don't get, is that uh, audiences do not like to be talked down to. They like to be treated like adults. They like to sort things out by themselves. And I think if you're just straight with them and say, look, here's what I saw, here's what people told me, you figure it out, that they'll respond positively to that. Um, however, a lot of the people in our business have taken the position that audiences will behave irresponsibly if left to their own devices. So we have to steer them in a certain way. And they think that that's the right thing. Um, I think they, they sincerely think that, but I think they're wrong. I think yeah. Stalin sincerely thought he was doing the right thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's like, no, these poor buggers, if they knew what I know, they'd do what I'm telling them. But they're not going to do what I'm telling them, so we're going to need some gulags. You know, stuff like it's, <laughs> you know, like you right. always, exactly. like, that's what authoritarian authoritarianism sort of is, isn't it? It's like, I'm right, and I just don't have time <laughs> to explain to you that, why I'm right, so... I'm telling you, I'm right, baby, at the end of a gun. Yeah, that's really cool, Matt. Um, when's your book? Oh, sorry, go. Yeah, no, just just, just, just to interject briefly on that, because I think it's an important point. Part, part of 
you know, what journalism is supposed to be about is, you know, we're not experts. You know, they assign us something at two o'clock in the afternoon and we're supposed to have something out at six. We are professional test crammers, right? We're we're just vehicles for information. And so you have to have some humility about the, the fact that we get stuff wrong all the time or our initial impressions are often incorrect. And so that has to be built into your approach when you talk to people. Just to give an example, like, you know, the whole lab leak theory thing, like I, I take no position on that because I, I don't know. Uh, they essentially, you know, the, eventually they're going to figure out exactly how this thing started and uh, it doesn't really matter to me one way or the other at this point. But you, when you're reporting it, you have to say, all right, well, here's what we know. It could be this, it could be that. We'll find out. You know, there has to be some humility built into that. What what you're seeing with reporters now is an absence of humility. Oh, and, you wow. know, what, what they're doing is they're saying, it's absolutely this. And if you think any other way, you are a conspiracy theorist. And that's what you're getting at with that, you know, that authoritarian mindset. Like it, only a certain kind of person thinks that way. Um, no one who does this for real could possibly think that way because there's just too much evidence too much experience of well things change and you know you have to prepare for that right so sorry to interrupt but no man yeah. like humility is a spiritual principle and i like honesty is a spiritual principle it doesn't matter whether like you even if you know i'm suspect that you're kind of agnostic type guy it's just my assumption about you but like that um like that but like if you even if you're coming at it from a humanitarian sort of perspective rather than a you know religious one like the idea that we have integrity, authenticity, humility. If you don't have those things, you start to recognize it in whether it's in an individual or in an organization. You start, you start to feel, uh-oh. And like, yeah, like exactly as you describe it, that, that makes sense to me. That would take so much heat out of all this stuff if people began to communicate with one another. And I suppose the only thing we can do is like, well, we, you're doing it. I'm trying my best to do it. To start to, to... No, you're definitely doing it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Thanks, man. I like. I feel like I'm really. I really enjoyed talking to you. I think you're a credit to your father and a credit to your profession, man. It's really oh, great thank to you. talk thank to you. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. It really has, and it's. Uh, and and I'm, uh, congratulations on your show. <laughs> Is it 4.8 million now? It's 4.8. Uh, yeah, we're climbing radically. I'm really. So I'm pe I'm fantastic. panhandling for them subscriptions. I tell you, Matt. Um, when your book comes out, mate, do you wanna do a series of like? interviews like on say youtube like you could pick like sort of three to five or even one subjects and we'll put them out and you know we could even do a promotional code and then you'll see how many books you're selling as a direct result of that collaboration i bet people on our channel would love <laughs> your thing yes of course that'd be cool that, that'd be cool because we're using would, your content be, all the time anyway great. might as well yes. sell some books off the back of it like um yeah and we could and if you're up for any kind of collaborate i know you do a podcast as well and if you're up for any kind of um collaboration i um, would be totally down absolutely well this has been a lot of fun russell i really appreciate it and um uh, i'm so glad that you're that you're having the so much success with this i think it's i think uh you're really you're really on to something and um you know, it, it's going to keep growing. So, Thanks, man. Thank you so much for having me on and uh, look forward to hearing from you. 
Yeah, take it easy, mate. If you enjoyed that conversation between me and Matt Taby, let me know on Instagram at Russell Brand or on Twitter at Rusty Rockets. Sign up to my mailing list. Come and see me on tour. I, I'm doing some wonderful shows. They're really brilliant. You should have seen me in Hammersmith the other day. Fantastic. I'm all over this country. Scotland, the south of the country of England, all over the gaff. Go to russellbrand.com right now. Book your tickets and become part of this movement. We're creating something really beautiful. Right, Jenny May? Yeah. Well done. Now, thank you very much for listening to Under the Skin on Luminary.